everybody, welcome. It is wonderful to have you here. Um, you should all have um, one of these, which says, Understanding God's Design for Childhood on it. And you might wonder what on earth uh, I'm doing giving you a handout about childhood in a uh, series of Bible studies which is supposedly all about maturity. Well, yes. Uh, as we'll discover um, this evening, I hope, by God's grace, um, childhood is the process by which a person grows to maturity. Or rather, it's the process by which a person ought to. And just a short circuit everywhere that we're going to be going to this evening, uh, and you'll be able to anticipate this if you've been with us for a few weeks and recall some of the things we've talked about. In effect, uh, the struggles that we have as adult human beings amount to a failure of our own childhoods. And in biblical terms, therefore, understanding how childhood is supposed to work and how some of its features can be replicated in adulthood is a very valuable way to start approaching the task of patching up some of the things that are wrong with us. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We should pray, uh, ask God's blessing upon our time. Uh, so let's begin by doing that, and then we'll begin. Merciful Father, we're so grateful to you for one another, uh, for this time for your word, the Bible, and for its wisdom. And in some senses, Father, we feel as though we're uh, rediscovering things that we know as we reflect together uh, on these, uh, the material we've been looking at in recent weeks. And perhaps we'll have that experience again today. And yet, Father, there may be new things here for us. And certainly, would it be our experience, we pray, that we are able to reassemble these uh, thoughts and insights from your word in fresh ways so as to shed fresh light on the task before us. We don't want to remain childlike. We want to grow up in Christ and become more like him, the mature man. And so we ask that as we reflect on the task of child raising and the, the process of childhood this evening, you'd help us to figure out how to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to follow the pattern more or less of what I've done in previous weeks. Uh, we're going to read the next uh, extract from this, the, the master handout, as I sort of think of it. I don't know whether I've referred to it as that. Um, uh, the, the handout that we looked at together in the men's discipleship breakfast, and I've been working through one section or one paragraph at a time in uh, recent weeks. Uh, and I've got uh, on the handouts before you tonight... I've got uh, a nice big grey box on the first page, uh, which is a summary. And in dark, larger type, you will find the uh, material that we're going to be focusing on this evening. In small, normal type, a much more condensed summary of all the things that we've looked at so far. So as we're going through, we're digging more deeply into the, the, the new material, and we're condensing more... Uh, more tightly the stuff we've looked at already. So let me read through this, and this will really form the agenda, as in previous weeks, for the rest of our discussion this evening. The Christian faith is all about pursuing maturity in Christ. That is, Christ-likeness in every area of life. Christ himself is the perfect mature man, and he has bestowed his maturity on us as a gift by the Spirit. 
He calls us now to exhibit this gift in increasing measure and promises that we may make it, may expect to make significant progress as we seek to do so. But we don't always experience this progress. Indeed, sometimes Christians seem to make little progress at all or even regress towards immaturity. Why might this be? We obviously can't just ignore the problem. Instead, while recognizing the sovereignty of God's grace, we must try to understand what we can do to grow in maturity and faithfulness. And that brings us up to date with what we've looked at so far. That Those two little paragraphs, condensed summary of four weeks of study and reflection, four or five. Um, so we continue. The crucial question might be posed in this way. And if last week was me... Um, exposing the pastoral heart uh, that drove me to reflect on these questions in the first place, this week, if you like, encapsulates what I think might be at least a biblical solution. The crucial question might be posed in this way. Is it possible to articulate a systematic Biblically grounded, theologically informed framework for approaching the task of growth towards maturity in Christ in every area of our lives. Besides what we all know we should be doing already, trusting Jesus, regular corporate worship and fellowship, daily prayer, scripture reading, seeking advice, striving for godliness, does scripture suggest a big picture that directs us towards specific concrete steps that might produce the fruit of the spirit in greater measure? Is there something we could do? or an insight that we're lacking that will save us from just a perpetual treadmill of trying harder or giving up. It turns out that it does. According to Scripture, the normative, God-given process by which a person grows from immaturity to maturity has a simple name, childhood. Somewhat humiliating to realize this. Sorry about that. Parents are called to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in the confident expectation that the Lord will be at work in and through that process to bring them from Christian infancy to Christian adulthood. And if we all had perfect parents, that's where we'd be. There was a man who had a perfect father. And he grew to perfect maturity as a man. And he began his ministry, having never put a foot wrong. He started out as a child but was raised by his perfect father through all the vicissitudes of childhood and his teenage years and young adulthood. So that by the time he got to about 30 years old, he'd reached the maturity of adult manhood. Consider how parenthood is supposed to work. Parents love their children, bring them into a worshipping community, provide the basic essentials of life, food, shelter and clothing. They provide a great deal more, of course, but those essentials at least. They show them how to relate to others, teach them about God and his world and discipline and correct them when their behaviour strays from the path of righteousness. But parents also do more than this. Parents provide a vision for their children's growth and a structure within which that growth can take place. They have a clear understanding of what their children's capacities are and they have a clear vision of how those capacities ought to develop in the future. Put more simply, they know where their children are and they know where their children ought to be going. Crucially, their children's movement along this journey is facilitated by the imposition of structures or patterns of behaviour 
designed to inculcate habits that shape their children's character. Structures, habits, character. Over time, this character takes root and the externally imposed structures can be relaxed as the children learn to govern their own behaviour. It is this capacity for Christ-like self-government that lies at the heart of maturity in Christ. Now, what are we going to do this evening then? Well, really what I want to do is to look at those last three paragraphs in a bit more detail and unpack how parenthood and therefore childhood is supposed to work. And this is what I was alluding to when I was hinting earlier during our prayer before this. Much of this will be very familiar. Um, Many of the biblical texts we've looked at before. But what I want to do is to um, adopt a particular perspective of looking at that material in a certain way so as to highlight certain aspects of it. And those aspects that I want to highlight are the particular facets or elements of this childhood process that we as not fully mature adults need to grab a hold of in order to uh, make progress ourselves. So, if you like, we're looking at probably mostly, though not entirely familiar material from a different angle and trying to place it in a different synthetic framework, a different overall framework to enable us to see some new things. So, if you flip over the page with me, what we've got uh, are three elements of parenting that I simply want to describe. And they're the three elements that were highlighted in... Those last three paragraphs, or paragraphs one and two of those last three, uh, provision that parents provide for their children, goals, um, they know where they are and they know where they're going, and finally, structures. So those are the things that parents try and provide. That's what I'm going to try and argue. And then I want to show you that in the scriptures because there's a bunch of biblical texts here. And in all those biblical texts, you find a mishmash of those different elements. And then the crucial step to realize is that those structures create habits or ought to be designed to create habits and the habits ought to be designed so as to shape the character of the growing young person. And that character, if it's godly Christian character, is the same thing as maturity in Christ. So we've got several things in view. We've got what do parents do? Provisions, goals, structures. And then those structures are the things that are designed to create habits. And the habits lead to the ingraining and cultivation of character, which is the same as maturity. And then I want to show you the whole thing in scripture in a slightly different way by highlighting not how scripture says individual people are to grow up, but how God's people throughout the whole of human history are supposed to grow up. And it turns out that the shape of the history of God's people in the Bible has uh, very stark and significant resemblances to how a young person should grow up, that structures ingrain habits which produce character. 
So are you with me? You see what we're going to be trying to do? So first, let's just think about these three elements of parenting. I'll talk about the first one, then I'll pause um, and see if you've got any thoughts, comments. In that, um, uh, the summary I gave you a moment ago on the first page, I highlighted a number of different things that parents provide for their children. I know they do all kinds of other things. Like they take them on holiday, and they buy them donuts, and they, you know, you take them for medical treatment and so on and so forth. But there are basic things that parents do for their children. Food, shelter, clothing, economic necessities. Now, why do parents do this? Why do parents do this? Genuinely, why do you do this? They love them. Yeah, great. To keep them alive. To keep them alive. Yeah. Um, imagine yourself in the kind of Robinson Crusoe situation on a desert island. What would happen to your uh, two delightful daughters if you weren't there to feed them? Apart from lots of sunbathing. And <laughs> what, what would happen? Would, would, they, would they survive? If they could find enough lizards to catch, maybe. Right. You don't think? No. We could try this experiment. Um, and it's an interesting thought experiment, actually, because what it highlights um, is that uh, historically, uh, we now provide far more for our children for far longer than was ever done before. Uh, what actually happens is that um, we, we begin with a baby, that's like Melody Claghorn. If somehow the parents disappeared, or worse, and this has happened in many situations in the past, if the parents were to abandon that child and the child were not picked up and cared for by somebody else, the child would die. You start with a child who is absolutely dependent on its parents for the provision of necessities, food, warmth, clothing, shelter, protection. And as they grow up, you get to a certain point, like six or seven years old, where you could say, right, enough of this. Um, it's time you guys started to make a contribution to this household. We can't afford to be looking after you. There's far too many younger children. You know, the, you're the oldest of five, and of course you're eight years old, but you know, we've, there are others younger than you who need our care, and you need to go and provide. So um, you'll have to go to work down the coal mine, I'm afraid. Um, how old is Clara? Clara? You just turned seven. Well, you're easily old enough, Clara, Clara Claghorn. Did you realize that was a tongue twister when you came up with that? Clara Claghorn is easily old enough that in the early 19th century, you could have been working 10 or 12-hour shifts in a coal mine in the north of England if you'd been born just a couple of hundred years earlier. You think I'm joking? No, I'm serious. In, 19, sorry, in 1842... An act of parliament was passed in Britain, making it illegal to send children under the age of 10 down coal mines. How old's Jack? You're just over 10, right? So you still have to go, 12. Um, the way that coal mines worked in, in England was that there would be a, a vertical shaft, and then there will be, this is a particular kind of coal mine, vertical shaft, and then horizontal tunnels from various points on the vertical shaft. And then other little horizontal tunnels going out from them. 
And as the tunnels went further out, they got smaller and smaller. And the smallest tunnels would be about 16 inches high. So the, the height of this stage is probably about 16 inches. And what would happen is um, you'd have uh, a leather belt, thick, stout leather belt strapped around your waist with a big metal hook at the back. And the hook would be attached to a chain, and the chain would be attached to a cart. It's about the size of one of those trash cans, but laid on its side with wheels on it. And you would be uh, employed as a hurrier. Uh, you're called a hurrier because you had to hurry from the coalface where the men were chipping away with pickaxes at the coal along these tunnels to the place where it could be put in the, uh, the elevator to be taken up to the surface. And you'd be doing that for 12 hours a day. And it's interesting to reflect on that because why, why don't we do that nowadays to our children? So if nobody can think of a reason, then um, why, why, why wouldn't you do that to Yeah, Kaylee. Well, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, that's an interesting confession. Now, notice that was Katie who said that, not me. Children have been spoiled and trained not to be able to survive that kind of treatment. Um, I, I don't know whether you could survive it. I don't know whether I could. Uh, it's interesting to reflect on. But there's a more kind of uh, warm and... Uh, or heartwarming reason why we don't do this to our children anymore. What, what? It's really bad for them. Like it's really bad for them. Adults don't do that. Yeah, adults don't do that anymore. Yeah. You don't have adult coal miners at all? Or Not mostly. Although there are some adults who work in conditions as horrific as that in various places in the world. Cobalt mines and so on. Don't mention the cobalt Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, okay, so why don't we just send them out to work at the age of 10 in Chick-fil-A, flipping, I mean, is that, is that really bad for them? Why, why not? It stifles their development. Yeah, stifles their development. It would mean that you do produce a return on your investment sooner for your parents. Yeah? Instead of them having to pay for your schooling and take time off other productive work themselves to educate you, um, they could take the money that you earn from flipping burgers or mining coal. But the, the problem is, in the long term, it would mean that there's a lower return on investment, and not just financial, like personal, in terms of your intellectual development, in terms of the development of your um, appreciation of the good things of this world, literature and physics. and uh, So what, what actually happens is your parents don't send you out to work down the coal mines. Uh, they don't send you out to work in Chick-fil-A. Some of them don't even send you out to work when you get to 18 or 20 or 21 or 22 years old. They, they continue to pay or part pay for you to study at college somewhere 
And they do this because they think that it's a good investment in your character and your enjoyment of life and actually your economic productivity. And all of that under the heading of your maturity in Christ. They they want you to be a more mature, well-rounded, godly, faithful person. So they they pour all this time and all this money into you. And the point Kaylee has raised is a really interesting one because one begins to wonder whether it's all been entirely positive. And one of the questions parents inevitably have to ask themselves is whether they haven't at times provided a bit too much in the way of easy life and a bit too little in the way of challenge. Yeah? But what parents try to do is they protect you from the consequences of your uselessness and economic inactivity for decades, like two and a bit decades, so that you have this God-given glorious and wonderful opportunity to grow up and you won't die buried in a big heap of coal half a mile underground. And the aim of that is so you can grow. And during that time, back to the little summary paragraph again, they provide you with all kinds of other things. They uh, bring you into a worshipping community. They introduce you to other people. They give you a chance to develop relationships. Instead of being down the coal mine, hauling coal around, you get to have birthday parties with your friends. Isn't that cool? It's much nicer to have birthday parties with your friends than to have to drag coal around underground. You get to go to school at home or in a specialised school somewhere. And your parents also, when they, when they perceive that you are sort of straying off um, the path of righteousness and you're starting to behave in a slightly foolish way, what they ought to do is to discipline you and to correct you and try and bring you on the path. And all of that is different forms of provision. It's designed to give you... Um, to protect you from death and misery and hunger and pain and stunted growth. You're being given things so that you have a chance to get to a little bit older so that if you were dumped on a desert island, you'd have a chance of surviving. You with me? That's, how, that's what parents do. That's what parenting is, or part of what parenting is. Now, as part of this, um, parents also set goals for you. Before we go on to that, let me just pause for a second. I've talked a bit already. Any questions or comments so far? Is this making sense to people? Some of the children are looking a little nervous at this point, like wondering what's next. Um, they don't need to look nervous. The, wor- the worst is over. Any comments or thoughts so far? Mm. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. You know, um, the whole provision thing, as someone who grew up on a farm, there was two types of provision that we had to worry about. Um, what our parents provided for us and what we could provide 
for ourselves and from mm -hmm. the farm and for the farm. Yeah, yeah. So you, um, in some contexts, what happens is that you get given opportunities to provide for yourselves. Exactly. But you get, you get practice at adulthood. Exactly. And we'll come to that uh, in, in a moment or two. When, when should a child take full responsibility for themselves instead of relying on their parents? Um, are you looking for an answer in years and months and weeks? Presumably not. So what kind of answer are you looking for? Yeah. Um, We, we can't give an answer in terms of, like, what age, can we? And this is, this is part of the problem with um, uh, cookie-cutter educational and training programs. Some young people at 14 are ready for what other young people at 18 aren't ready for. You know, um, there's, there are differences between people. Um, what, what, what should a parent try to do in terms of allowing you to stand on your own two feet and so on? Yeah, Pastor Neil. Use your phraseology when should a child take full responsibility? How about always? Um, even a wee little dinker, uh, if he sinned or if he did, if, if he did it, admit it, you take full responsibility for what you did. If you had responsibility for admitting for eight years of age, mm. so isn't all of that with this presentation the idea of? Training them yeah. where they're good at it. It's not the first time when all of a sudden they're 18. So right. why should right. an 18 year old all of a sudden start looking at a budget? Why haven't right. they learned how to manage um, whatever money they might have in their 12, 13, 14? Right, very good, very good. So, you, so rather than thinking just, okay, being responsible for yourself switches on at a certain point, how about? The paradigm that says we're always wanting our young people to be responsible for themselves. And what we're just doing is we're trying to give them more and more to be responsible for. So your parents give you a clothing allowance, right? But not because they suddenly want you to go out and spend it all on a cubic yard of candy. But because they want you to sort of think, well, how much do socks cost? And how much do shirts cost? And do I have enough um, sweaters for the winter? And do I need a new pair of shoes? Well, I need to go and check, don't I? And, and actually work. And wise parents will give you problems that can't easily be solved. And what counts as not easy to solve will be different for a five-year-old from what from a fifteen-year-old. Life will confront you with problems that can't be solved easily. And so this whole process. I remember when I was. Um, no, I won't tell that story. I'll tell the story another time. Um, yeah, uh, we had a hand up from Uriah, which looks like a question from over here somewhere. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Great. Um, yeah. So, um, this, Kaylee's point is actually really um, highly relevant here. This uh, provision that parents make for their children is always two-edged. Because whenever you give somebody something, you take away the possibility that they will do it for themselves. It's just economics. Economics is the study of human action, correct? 
And if, what will you do if there's an option, there's a choice between I'll take it for nothing or I'll work for it myself? Well, I'll take it for, you know. <laughs> it'd be perverse for you to create for yourself something that somebody's just given to you. So, and it might even be ungrateful. So one of the challenges is to work out how, as parents, we need to withdraw provision from our children in a sustainable way that inculcates that spirit of taking responsibility. Now, this is really highly relevant for where we're going with this next week, because as adults, if you start thinking about this, like nobody is going to hold your hand. And if so, if if you've got to adulthood and you don't know how to budget, um, the your bank isn't going to press pause on your debts and financial obligations while you catch up. Nobody will make provision for you. We're done. If you're very, very fortunate, you might find rare situations in which you can get a help from somebody to give you um, something to support you, but mostly you're going to have to work harder to provide it for yourself. And one of the things, if we were talking about children and young people growing up, one of the things I'd want to impress upon you is don't waste these years. It's very precious time. You should be busy using the time that you have of meals just appearing by magic from your mother's kitchen. Um, you should use this time to make, make the best use of it. Anyway, we'll come back to that another time. Um, second thing, goals. Implicitly or explicitly, parents all have goals for their children. And it's helpful, perhaps, to think of two aspects of this, diagnosis and targets. Like, where are you? Where are we trying to get you to? Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Totally non-autobiographical, okay? My son doesn't tidy his bedroom. Diagnosis. Goal that he should tidy his bedroom. Yeah? No, actually, that's not true. Ben has, for years, been really, really tidy in his bedroom. Well done, Ben. Um, but other things. Diagnosis. Discipline issues. Uh, those two girls, are always at each other's throats. Catty arguments over the breakfast table. Goal. Right, okay, we don't want that. We don't want that. Diagnosis. Um, Jack Claghorn can't yet solve second-order differential equations. Unfortunate. Goal, but, um, that, well, that's, sorry, that's the diagnosis. Goal, well, you, that you should be able to solve second order differential equations. Right? You're sitting next to a man who might be able to help, actually. Um, uh, diagnosis. Clara Claghorn has not yet read George Herbert's poetry. Goal, that by the age of 16, she should be deeply familiar with a good chunk of George Herbert's wonderful poetry. You see all these things? Goals in terms of personal disciplines, uh, diagnoses and goals in terms of personal godliness, in terms of education. And you might have other goals. What other things do parents diagnose about their children? What other things do you notice about your kids? Give some examples. You don't notice anything about your children. Yeah, Mr. Herrera. 
Yeah, yeah. Nearness for responsibility. Eagerness for responsibility, yes. And so you might think um, one or more of your kids are a little slow to take responsibility for what they've done or a little slow to take the initiative in solving a problem. And then you think, okay, my goal is to try and get them to a place where they're doing that more. Does that make sense? So what's interesting is the goals are all different aspects of a description of what maturity in Christ looks like. If they're good goals, the diagnoses are descriptions of the degree to which they fall short of those things. So good parents will think about their kids and think, okay, where are they? Where do we want to get them to? And those those are really important things to think about because it will affect your educational plans and, and what you do what kind of provision you make for them. If it's your goal that they should get the highest SAT score possible, that will shape your educational priorities in a way that's different from if you are trying to combine those numerical metrics with Christ-likeness and godliness and uh, an understanding of the scriptures and... Um, some kind of educational goals that won't get them a high SAT score. Yeah? So being a bit explicit about that is really important. So provision, all these things to allow kids to be kids and grow. Goals. And finally, structures. So let's go back to um, Jack Claghorn right, with his inability to solve second-order differential equations. Lamentable failure. So what we're going to do is we're going to slap you with a massive bunch of very hard math problems. And we're just going to keep whacking you on the head with them until you can do it. Is that going to work? Now, what, what, what do we need to do if we want to get you to the point where, like Mr. Capone sitting next to you, you can solve those complex equations? What do we have to do? Well, teach. Teach. Help along the way. Have you done um, a bit of basic algebra? You got to that? Yeah, little bits of algebra. So you're, you're starting with algebra. So you're starting with like really simple equations and, and then those will get a bit more complicated. Then you'll do trigonometry. Yeah, no, it sounds scary and it is actually. And then you'll do sort of basic calculus and then you'll build on the basic calculus and you'll get to the more difficult calculus. So what we do is we start you with something simple and we provide a framework within which you can grow. Here's like a textbook and maybe your mum's going to help you with it or we'll find some online videos that you can watch that will help you to work through it or we'll find you a math teacher who could meet with you once a week and like, help you to take the next step, yeah? So you grow bit by bit because you've got this structure provided for you, yeah? Yeah, Hannah? What if you make your own goals? Right, what if you make your own goals? Right. Yeah, now that's interesting because then you're getting towards the point that um, Anne highlighted. If you start, if you're a young person and you make your own goals, um, it might be that that's a good thing because you say, okay, I want to be a firefighter or I want to be a nurse or I want to be a school teacher. Uh, or it might be that you say, I want to be a trapeze artist in the circus. See? Now, some of those goals might be wiser or less wise than others. And your parents might be very keen to encourage you and help you and support you in training to be a nurse. Not so enthusiastic about training you for the high wire act. Can you see? Um, here's an illustration. Um, Structures. Have you ever grown tomato plants? Yeah? If you grow tomato plants, you have these 
you, you, you know, tomato seeds and whatnot, and, and you put like little sticks for the plants to grow up. Yeah. Once they're fully grown, if you take the sticks away, they'll actually stay standing. I mean, I know if you've got these kind of super modern ones, they probably won't stay standing because they've been genetically engineered to put all of their in- energy into making fruit and none of it into making strong stems. But there are plants where you need a little stick to start with and the plant grows up the stick. And then once it's fully grown, you can take the stick away. And I once saw a tree that was like this. It was really cool. It was a, a tree and the, the trunk was like a spiral, like a corkscrew. And I thought, how have they done that? And the answer is very simple. What they've done is they trained it up a, a stick when it was very young and flexible. And then as it grew bigger and thicker and stronger, they then took the stick away. And now the branch was about like two inch diameter and it was coiled tightly round. It was a really cool tree. It was in a big pot in a pub car park in London. Things you see in pubs in London. So you see, you see what, 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 what parents try to do? They provide near endless seriously, resources for their children so their children don't die and don't just get by but right at the other end of the spectrum they have an opportunity to grow and learn and study and, and flourish in all the different ways in which they ought to and, and right at the heart of this is to be growing in godliness and Christ-likeness and maturity and that implies secondly that they have goals they think well, Jack's here we want to get him to here. You know, he wants to be an engineer when he grows up. Well, he's going to have to solve those difficult sums, isn't he? So we're going to have to work out how to do get from here to here. And how you get from here to here is with the structures that will help him to grow that way. Make sense? That's what parents do for you. That's what parenting is. And those structures, let me just get to the end of this little section, then we'll pause. The structures of life are intended to produce habits which in turn produce character. The easiest way to see this is by thinking about structures designed to cultivate basic godliness. Let's suppose you you have a goal of you want your children to be avid Bible readers and prayers. That's a good goal to have. And you look at your six-month-old daughter and you think, well, she's not really reading the Bible very avidly. doesn't really seem to pray very much. So what do you do? Well, what you do is you say, well, I've diagnosed the situation um, and I've got a goal in mind. I'd love her to be the sort of young lady who every morning, first thing she does after she's got out of bed is to sit down with the word of God and to work through it a little bit and to pray. So then what you say is, okay, um, we're going to provide her with a Bible, a little kiddie Bible. And then we're going to put a structure in place. We'll have family Bible time. And what we'll do in the morning is that mum and dad and all the little little kids, we'll all be together, maybe we'll just have like a 15 minute time of quiet, or maybe just five minute when they're very young, time when we're just quiet with our Bible, and all that little Melody is doing in a few months' time is looking at the pictures and gurgling, but she's participating in this structure, and what happens over the years is that this is habit forming, yeah, you, every morning you get up and you go from just looking at the pictures to actually asking difficult questions, but you're still reading the Bible, you're still praying, you're still And then over time, that shapes your character, both because of the content of what you're doing. You're actually reading the word of God. Well, that will shape your character. And the mere fact that you're doing it repetitively, the mere fact that you do it repetitively will make you into the sort of person that needs to do whatever it is you're doing. So 
those structures produce the habits, and the habits over time change your heart, produce character. And that character ought to be Christ-like character. So that's what that little box a third of the way down page two is supposed to be all about. Now let me pause there for a second because I've talked quite a lot. Any comments or questions so far um, about anything you've talked about? Uriah, yes. Somebody from over here. Go ahead. Right. Is there such a thing as growing up too fast? Um, and anything to recommend to keep the kids grounded um, where they're supposed to be rather than reaching beyond where they're supposed to be? Um, I could think of a number of different ways of taking the question. Let me make a couple of comments and then maybe Pastor Neil um, chip in if you want to. Um, uh, is there such a thing as growing up too fast? Yes. And there's some obvious examples. Like, I enjoy single malt whiskey. Jack, you don't. Too young. My son, Ben, I think is too young. He's 18. He's not far off, old enough. And he'll have a beer with me. But whiskey is just extremely strong. right? So there are things like that. Um, there are experiences which are emotionally difficult to handle or subjects which have a particular character to them where you think it's probably best if we, given the choice, if we don't expose very young children to those subjects or to those experiences. That said, um, there's a cost to that. I mean, those kids who went down coal mines, those who survived, had some very difficult experiences, but as Kaylee highlighted, they'd have learned something from that. Um, Many children, in fact, almost all children... Um, before the early 20th century, by the time they were your kind of age, 8, 9, 10, would have seen a dead body, probably a member of your own extended family who probably died in your house. I've never seen a dead body, and I'm 47. Now, to see somebody, to see a dead body is probably a very traumatic experience. Um, but one wonders whether it's the kind of traumatic experience that might do us good in the long run. And the fact that we're protected from it, is it entirely a good thing? And so the whole helicopter parenting phenomenon is a, a hyperextension of this, you know, where you try and protect young people from every everything that could be a bit painful, a bit difficult to them. Um, and I think uh, in, in one sense, so coming back to the question, um, an awareness of this danger is, is half the battle, and some historical perspective is also helpful. In other words, are, are we being a little bit too soft and have too low expectations of our children and young people? Maybe we could raise the bar for them slightly. Um, Pastor Neil, do you want to throw anything into the pot here? It's, it's a big subject. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, it's possible if you mean by this that. Now, if they didn't use the word grow up and they used the word mature, mm. is it possible for someone to mature too quickly? Um, not if you understand maturity according to the 
right. of life, then we always expect that to promote. Yes. Rise to the level of the gifts God has given you to be responsible with that. Yeah. But I, I appreciate that. Because here's the other thing. Some people think maturity is getting to do whatever you want to do, hmm. or growing up means getting to do what you want to do. But growing up in maturity also means um, learning what to say no to. Yes. And I'm not going to look at that or I'm not going to eat yes. or drink that or I'm going to stay away from it. Yeah. So maturity is about learning to constrain your own actions when there's nobody there to constrain them for you. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I'll mention again, just for folks on um, the Zoom, Pastor Neil highlighted is um, there's no such thing as too much maturity. If by maturity you mean as appropriate for that person's age. Um, Sometimes um, people are really profoundly shaped in a positive way, but by experiences which you really wish that they didn't have to have at all or until they were much older. Um, children who lose a parent very young, you, no, nobody wishes that on anybody. But uh, it has the potential to, well, it can be a sort of sink or swim thing. Um, a young man who loses a father in his early teens and who really becomes the father of his house, looking after his younger siblings, could become sort of 12 or 13, going on 25 in terms of his maturity. But it's also possible to imagine that going horribly wrong and a child, a young person, lacking all the stability that a, a, a father ought to be able to be there to give. Does that make sense? So I don't, I don't know that there's a... An easy answer to that. And like I said, awareness of the issues is, is half the battle. All right, so you, can you see what we're doing? We're, in one sense, we're, we're thinking of this very familiar process, but trying to analyze it or attach labels to it in a slightly different way. And the reason for these labels, the reason for these analytical categories, that is to say, the reason to break it down in this way, is because these are the categories that we will need when we come to ourselves in the next few weeks. If I think I'm, a, I'm behaving like a child, I'm immature in my attitude to movies. I watch trash the whole time. Or if I think I'm really immature in my attitude to um, relationships or to work, I'm ill-disciplined in my work. Or if I'm, if I'm lacking maturity in, in the way I use my tongue, then what's missing is a properly functioning process of growth towards maturity, and analyzing that process in this way will allow me to think, okay, I need to put in place structures. What structures am I going to put in, in place for myself that will inculcate habits that will change my character in, in the right direction so that I get some discipline with my work or with the way I use my tongue or how I use my time in the evenings and watching trashy movies or doing something more productive? Is this making sense? So all this familiar stuff but viewed through lenses which we can then transfer to ourselves as adults. So then, if I can encourage you just to move on, and we'll just look at uh, briefly at these um, biblical texts. And these are very, very familiar texts, right? But if we just go through them one at a time, um, uh, beginning with Proverbs 22, verse 6, you knew this was coming. What we'll see is all these different elements in various 
proportions and in various relation to each other in lots and lots of different biblical contexts. And they'll illuminate them for us, I think. So Proverbs 22, 6, very familiar text. Um, And at the risk of ripping it out of context, but for the sake of time, we'll just read it. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. What's going on there? How does that relate to the structures, habits, character um, pattern that we've observed already? Train up a child in the way that he should go, yeah. Well, the thing about teaching them starting at a young age, they latch on to these habits, and when they're growing up, if you do the job rights, yeah. they're, it's like a bad penny, it follows them around. Yeah, yeah, that's right, good, very good. So it's very simple. It's obvious, isn't it, when you think about it? Interestingly, you've heard me say this before, um, the text is uh, unnervingly ambiguous. Uh, It could just as easily read, train up a child in the way that he would go, or would like to go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Can you see how that could be read in a negative way as well? You You let a kid do whatever it is that they want to do, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Hebrew poetry is often deliberately, uh, I don't want to say ambiguous, but double-edged like that, because it's very sparse in the words it uses. And you can just easily imagine, can't you, the caricature of a kid who's never been told no to anything. You're training him up in whatever way he wants to go, because you're desperately worried that he'll reject you as a parent. You're so insecure about, oh, you, may, you won't like me, and yeah, whatever. You, know. uh, you won't think I'm cool like all his, parent, his friends' parents seem to be. And so you cave in to all his demands, and then you discover that he doesn't know how to say no to anything. Like Pastor Neil says, yeah, brother. That verse actually contains provision, goal, and structure. Yes. Provision, train. Train, goal, provision, yeah. Wherever he's going to go, structure. Right, yeah, exactly. Provision, goal, and structure is all in here. The training is exactly what your parents are providing for you. Thank you, Lord, for the spank on the backside that my dad gave me five years ago. I'm not so sure I can thank him for the one I got yesterday evening. But thank you, Lord, for the training, for the structure. That's how you ought to be praying. Because believe me, it's a far more... um, it's far less painful experience to be disciplined by your parent than to find yourself inside, as in prison, right? That's a miserable experience. And uh, you, you either learn to respond to an authority that loves you, or you need to respond to an authority that doesn't. But in the end, you have to submit to authority. So, train up a child in the way that he'd, he'd ought to go. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's um, look at First Samuel chapter 2, because this is a... a fascinating and terrible example of when it all goes badly. You know the, the, uh, the narrative here, this is in chapter 1, we've met Hannah um, and the other wife of Elkanah, her husband, Penina. So Elkanah has two wives, Penina has children, Hannah doesn't have any children, and Hannah is really upset and she um, asks the Lord for a son and uh, a son is given to her and then he go, she goes up to the temple to give him to the Lord's service uh, in the temple and um, uh, there uh, he finds himself, well, with the, the, the scene changes slightly, and it turns out that um, there are some people already working in the temple, uh, Eli and his two sons, um, who are described 
as worthless men in chapter 2, verse 12. Now, um, his son's called Hophni and Phineas. Um, and let me just read a couple of um, uh, extracts from this section um, just to highlight what's happened here. So uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. And then it explains what they did. Basically, what they used to do was um, they would insist on not receiving cooked meat, but only raw meat before the fat had been burned up and offered to the Lord. So what they're actually doing is um, stealing the Lord's portion of the offering, which is the fat from off the surface of the meat. Now, why would you want that, you might ask? Well, the answer is probably it was just more valuable. So if they got the whole joint of pork, not pork, <laughs> it wouldn't have been pork, would it? Of lamb, obviously. Um, but the whole, um, then that would be worth more in the market than something that had already had the fat cut off and had been cooked and so on. So they uh, were, as verse uh, 17 says, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the young men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They didn't allow the people to make their offerings to the Lord appropriately by burning the fat up and giving it to God. So um, what's going on behind the scenes here? Well, verse 22 tells us that Eli is very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who are serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Uh Uh-oh, gets worse. And he said to them, why do I hear of such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear uh, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now that's an intriguing little clause, which we'll maybe look at another time. Um, but it may, you've clearly got this situation where you've got a man with two grown-up sons who have gone way off the rails, like way off the to the point where their father is like despairing. It's like all this stuff I hear you guys are doing. What what are you doing? He's horrified by what's happening to them. And then this prophet, or the man of God verse 27, comes to Eli and tells him how this has all come about. Look really carefully with me. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. In other words, you've been in this position of astonishing privilege, being the family given the privilege of offering the sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices? And my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves, plural, on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Look really closely at that, that last verse. You are scorning my sacrifices, Eli. And how are you doing it? Well, honoring your sons above me, fattening yourselves on the choicest part of the offering of my people Israel. Whatever's happening, Eli, the father, is a part of what's going on. Now, it's not obvious whether 
um, it's a reference to the past. It looks like it's a reference to actually what's going on at the present. So Eli is, even now, setting this terrible example of complicity with his sons in uh, fattening yourselves on the choices portion of the sacrifices. So, Eli, why are you so surprised that they're sleeping with the women who serve at the entrance of the tent of meeting? Because your example is ingraining in them the kind of contempt that they've shown towards me, which is manifested everywhere else. Can you see? What kind of structures has he provided for them? What kind of training and discipline has he provided for them? He's trained them up in the way that they'd like to go. You know? And even now that they're old, he's he's the sense you get, I think, is he's not um He's he's complaining and rebuking them, but he's lost all moral authority. You see that? When he says, no, why do you do this? Why are you acting in this way? They don't respond to him with respect or honor. It's like, yeah, whatever, Dad. And you lose moral authority in that kind of way when you become complicit in the sorts of sins that you're trying to condemn. Any questions, comments about that? You see how things go wrong in that example. Um, let's scoot on a, um, a couple. We'll miss out the one from Deuteronomy 4 and, and skip down to Deuteronomy 9. I was um, conscious we might be running out of time. so uh, And Deuteronomy 4 is picked up mostly in Deuteronomy 9 anyway. So turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Sorry, and even as I say Deuteronomy 9, I realize I'm misreading it. I mean Deuteronomy 6. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's more like it. I'm looking at Deuteronomy 9 doesn't look like what I had in mind earlier. Right. Deuteronomy 6. Now, um, I'm going to read this. Then I want you to tell me, um, where do you see these elements of parenting, provision goals, structures, or the relationship between structures and habits and character in this text? Let me read it and then you can tell me. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Remember, this is Moses preaching to the Israelites just before he dies and before the conquest begins. So this is what you've got to do when you cross over the Jordan in the book of Joshua and go into the land. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your, sorry, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right. Very, very famous passage. Every parenting conversation makes reference at some point to this. Can you see any of these elements we've been talking about there? 
there are elements here which look like the kind of thing that's supposed to be habitual. Um, yes. Yeah, very good. And um, if you just look at that, um, uh, well, there's a couple of things, aren't there? So there's the, the structure uh, and the provision of teaching that comes from the commandments themselves. This is like a framework within which we live. Now, that then inculcates certain habits of life. And, and notice... Um, uh, there, are, there are consequences built into this. If you look at the end of verse 2, um, that your days may be long. That's an allusion back to the fifth commandment in, in verse 16, uh, chapter 5, verse 16. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And then Paul the Apostle highlights in Ephesians 6 that that's the first commandment that comes with a built-in promise. So the what you're getting there is the extension through history of the consequences of what you're doing. Just as structures, habits, character, that's actually on a timeline. Can you see? You, you put in place certain patterns of behavior to inculcate habits in your children, in this instance. With the result, you pray that it produces character. That's extended over time. Just as the fruit of keeping the commandment to honor your father and mother is extended over time. So what happens if you're honoring your father and mother? Well, you're keeping to these habits that you've been given. If you look on where the arrows are, structures, arrow, habits, arrow, character, what happens is honoring your father and mother is living within the structures. And over time, it develops into habits of how you relate to other people. And then you become, your character is shaped in that kind of way. You can think of really, really simple examples of this. I can remember going to stay with the family and um, uh, being really struck by uh, what was at the time an unfamiliar gesture of politeness. One of the young men in the family, uh, we stopped, we were in a car and he was in the front passenger seat and when we stopped, he jumped out of the car seat really quickly and opened the back passenger door for my wife to get out. I'd never seen that before. Now, I, I grant, obviously, it's a, it's a cultural manifestation of honouring a young lady. There are, there's nothing in the Bible about you've got to hold the doors open for young ladies, right? That, that, that's not in Scripture. But w- what's going on there? Well, that is a habit that's being inculcated. Like, here's, here's the rule. Um, you open the door for your sisters and any other young lady who happens to be around, or not so young lady, for that matter. That's the, that's the rule. That then creates this habit. And that, it turns out, generates in young men the kind of character which is respectful of ladies. It's, now, you could do that in a thousand and one different ways. If cars hadn't been invented you wouldn't be able to hold car doors open for people. yeah. But you'd have to find some way of inculcating it. Otherwise, you have the situation where uh, big brother treats his little sisters with kind of diffident contempt. Because, yeah, whatever. Which is actually what prevails in many families. You you have to find some 
structure, some pattern of behavior that can become a habit that will ingrain the right kind of character. I don't think it matters so much exactly what it is, although there are some cultural manifestations of that which would be more or less appropriate for us. But something needs to be done. Now, um, much of that is, what should we say, a long way down the road in terms of implications from um, Deuteronomy 6. Here we're, we're looking at um, big-ticket headline items of fidelity to God's commandments. But, but again and again in that short passage, the, um, the consequences are downstream, uh, time-wise. I'm also intrigued. What, what do you make of um, verses 8 and 9? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's going on there? You said, this is what you're supposed to do with the commandments. It's an allusion to those priestly ordinances connected with ordination where um, there is um, blood uh, applied to the hand and the head and the ear and so on. So do you think that um, people would actually have had some kind of um, little scroll? Do you remember when Jesus says in, uh, I think it's Matthew's Gospel, isn't it, they make their phylacteries broad and their tassels long. You know what a phylactery is? Phylactery is that is a little box which would have been attached by little leather strips to the forehead of some of the most fastidious Israelite leaders in Jesus' day, and it contained a little scroll of the Torah. And that was partly in reference to this. Um, let's just briefly look over to um, perhaps the most familiar passage of all that we've got on this list today, Ephesians 6. I, I do think there is some value in trying to make explicit the reasons for certain things. Why do I have to do this? Well, you can explain that. But I don't think that's the whole story. Because rituals or habits, habits and rituals are just the same thing, but in different contexts. Rituals we normally think of as to do with religious worship. The Lord's Supper is a ritual rather than a habit, but we do it habitually. You know, um, Rituals shape us even though we don't realize they're shaping us. And this is one of the profound things that we're going to have to get to later on. And an understanding of how and why you do it is not always necessary. So I don't think it's without value, but I don't think we should think this is the the, the sine qua non. This is the thing without which it's not going to work. I think more potent, actually, is the cluster of other uh, accompanying dispositions that make this something that we do joyfully. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, I hope that you guys worship regularly as families. You pray together, perhaps. You read scriptures together. And every family will do this differently. If you've got children, maybe you do it all together as a family. That'd be great. Now, I hope that none of you do what I have heard done in some tragic contexts where morning and evening there's half an hour of fairly laborious and lengthy prayer done 
with lots of explanation about why this is really, really important and not an ounce of joy. The explanation of why it's important won't help you. It, it will be far better to spend five minutes in joyful singing and then pray the Lord's Prayer together. Now, you could do five minutes of joyful singing and then five minutes of Bible reading and then pray where everyone prays something. You know, 15 minutes would be great too. I'm not trying to say do it short because that's better in some kind of weird, inverse, pious way. But what I'm saying is explaining why it's important doesn't fix something that is joyless. It also doesn't fix something where there's no gratitude. Son, take the trash out. It's Tuesday. No, no. Son, come on. I'm just going to go and um, uh, get all the uh, trash from upstairs. Um, why don't you go and get the, um, the, the trash can from outside, and I'll meet you by the front door, and we'll put it in, and we'll drag it out together, shall we? You know, and it kind of becomes a fun thing to do. Or more than that, it's like, isn't, isn't God kind to us to give us all this stuff that we get to eat? So we've got so much garbage to throw away all the time. You know, you, you, you try and inculcate, and that's a, a almost trivializing example, but a spirit of gratitude for the things that we have. Um, and this isn't something which you can artificially create. Some households just have this sense of uh, joy and gratitude for all the good things that God has given us. So that if if somebody says, "Hey, Jael, can you can you just clear the table and um, put all the the pots and uh, plates and stuff in the dishwasher?" You're not thinking, no. but you're just kind of this is okay, great, because this is a joyful household, we, and we do everything joyfully. So joy and gratitude, I think, they shape habits. I, I don't want you all to be miserably grinding through 40 minutes of daily Bible reading. I don't want you to do that. Don't do that. What I want you to do is to have lives that are filled with gratitude and joy and every day to be really excited about getting up in the morning and really excited about, okay, I'm, I'm, where's, where's the Bible? Where was I? Okay. And maybe you only have 12 minutes or five minutes or something. Well, that's fine. But do you, you're excited about it. You're grateful for it. And then especially with your children, the joy and gratitude will then rub off and that will inform the rituals. And the joy and gratitude will kind of make it stick in their character because things that they're happy about and things that they're grateful for, they will want those things to permeate them and and shape them as people. Whereas things that they're just doing resentfully every single day because dad's a minister and I've got to pray for half an hour every morning and evening in Latin with him. And I don't like it. It's like they're just looking forward for the to the day when they can stop. Can you see? So I don't, just to get back to your question, and then we're out of time, so we'll leave Ephesians 6 for another time. Um, I don't think it's the case that we need to explain it all, although sometimes that's useful. I think much more valuable is the the surrounding disposition and temperament of the home. And if you have a happy home, then all of the habits that you're inculcating in your kids with the structures you put in place will be suffused with joy and gratitude. And if you don't have that, then nothing's going to rescue it. Um, let me pray. And then we'll conclude. Merciful Father, uh, thank you for this time you've given us this evening. Uh, once again, uh, we ask that you'd help us to reflect uh, wisely and thoughtfully on what 
uh, we've been considering together. Would you shape us by your word and help us to uh, think uh, clearly about the, the ways that we could put structures in place in our own lives that help us to develop uh, habits and thence character of men and women who love and honour the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.